Hey, interior designers and design lovers. We're off to a great week here at Daniel House Club. I hope you're all heading into successful work weeks as well, filled with opportunities to specify all kinds of furniture for all your wonderful clients. If that's the case, remember Daniel House Club is here to help you specify simply and profitably. I'm Peter Spaulding, the Chief Creative Officer at Daniel House Club and your host for this podcast. We're in our fifth of six episodes focused on the book 1000 Chairs, one of the eight books Architectural Digest identifies as a book you should have read if you love interior design. Um, I'd sort of intended to focus my conversation around postmodernism generally and some of the chairs it produced, and to some extent that's still what I'm going to do, but as I began my research, I developed a crush on the designer Philippe Stark, who has made more than 20 chairs that are included in our book. And so this is going to be a little bit of a celebration of his accomplishments. In case that sounds like the intro to a eulogy, let me put you all at ease and say he's very much alive and remarkably only 73, given his staggering accomplishments. So I was born in 1988, and postmodernism was in full swing during my early childhood. And even then, I remember thinking it was a little ugly, a little strange. In fact, we still live in an age of postmodern thought, so it's a little difficult to say this is an historical movement, but the products of its ungainly infancy are now well behind us, so we can talk about it in that way. Even if this body of work, its buildings, its houses, its art, and yes, its chairs, is not your favorite, the, the movement itself is worth our attention. It was born, I think, in a headier time than our own. Much of it often looks silly, but its creators were quite serious. Theirs was a rebellion against too many years of architectural purity. The luster of Le Corbusier's machines for living and Ludwig Mies van der Rohe's glass skyscrapers had worn off and people, as they always do, yearned for something new. Or perhaps just something more. I mentioned last week that when my professor of modern architecture history visited the Yale School of Architecture for the first time in 1963, she said, ah, the glimmerings of postmodernism. I kind of said, I don't know how she, she sensed that, given that it wasn't even a movement that had been named yet. But if you haven't visited, the building is a concrete bunker-type thing designed by the architect Paul, Paul Rudolph. Since its completion, it has been the subject of great scrutiny, not to mention arson. Its bush-hammered concrete exterior and some of its interior uh, lands it squarely in the camp of what's called brutalist architecture. Um, but exploring this building is like exploring a medieval European castle. Not only does it have narrow switchback stairs ascending turrets, it's also filled with the same sculptural treasures such a place might have known. It is possible to get lost in reverie in this building, to find some corner yet unknown to the masses, and take in a piece of classical Greek or Roman sculpture up close and personal. This sort of experience is virtually unknown in the work of modernists, but it is vital to the postmodernists, at least early on. While many hate the school of architecture, I'm not among them, it gives us that something more people began to crave as modernism languished. At the building's roots, it seems 
to remember its users are human rather than machines, and that humans have a great past with which they are always engaged to some degree or another. This is the inception of the movement. As with so many movements, it went on to become something a bit more rhetorical. Before we get to Philippe Stark, we should look at a few of the luminaries of the age. Robert Venturi and Denise Scott Brown are totally critical to understanding postmodernism. They left us the important book, Learning from Las Vegas, the Chestnut Hill House, which he designed for his mother, and a collection of truly hilarious chairs that are, deliberately, bent plywood cartoon versions of classical chair forms. Of this collection, the pair did with Knoll, Venturi is quoted as having said, I wanted to get at the essence of an empire chair and to boil it down to a chair that stood for a typical elemental chair of the period. It would be difficult to say he succeeded. I continue to see all the original forms the chairs cartooned in people's home all the time and have yet to ever see a Venturi specified anywhere. What is elemental usually connects very well with the market, but these chairs were simply too weird. They were objects that distracted rather than appeared useful. What Venturi and Scott Brown did successfully, though, is instill in the masses this notion that theirs was a time, at least in art and architecture, that encouraged diversity over unity. To a large extent, that has remained the case ever since. We see all sorts of design going on simultaneously, rather than being able to observe singular mass movements as easily. Perhaps the most prominent of the postmodernists when the movement was in full swing was Michael Graves, who the New York Times once described as one of the most prominent and prolific American architects of the latter 20th century. He designed more than 350 buildings around the world, but was perhaps best known for a tea kettle and a pepper mill. And I should add, a clock radio, toaster, and telephone to that list. His telephone and clock radio sat on the nightstand of my parents' guest bedroom until my mom sold her house in 2013. My grandfather, a civil engineer in Portland, Oregon, finished his career looking out one of the hundreds of square windows that punctuates the jubilant facade of Graves' seminal work of architecture, the Portland Municipal Building. No designer more completely defined the look of my childhood than Michael Graves. And yet, as I think of the Portland building, jubilant doesn't actually quite feel right. It's colorful and decorative. Its front door is surmounted by Portlandia, a 34-foot-tall hammered copper statue of Lady Commerce holding a trident and kneeling over the city street below. It is entertaining, yes, but truthfully, pretty stoic in its stance. Graves plays with the past, but makes no real effort to engage with it, and in this, creates an architecture that is oddly a little bit devoid of the human. We can't actually call it pastiche, though. If Graves was attempting to imitate the past, we'd have to say he failed horribly. He isn't. He's winking and nodding, and hoping we'll all pick up on the cues and have a bit of fun. So he's not totally forgetting that we're here, just he's not thinking about how we're going to interact with his spaces as much as maybe we'd like him to. People want to have fun with a teapot or a clock radio, 
these are pretty insignificant purchases. We buy them, enjoy them for 10 years maybe, and then we put them on a bottom shelf or in a second bedroom when something new and shiny comes along. Architecture conceived on the same premise is more challenging. When the fun is over, we have a 34-foot tall statue and a lot of colorful tile that will cost $195 million to repair. And we repair it because our toy has been landmarked as significant work in the postmodern style. But it's a thing you love because it's bizarre, not because it has any particular power to move your soul. So that's Michael Graves in a nutshell. I should say he has an absolutely beautifully detailed library at the American Academy in Rome, where he spent some time after winning the Rome Prize in 1960. He was very talented, but sometimes his work was a little bit devoid of real purpose, and so his architecture has struggled to remain potent, even if perhaps it occasionally gives us entertainment. Another slightly later giant of the postmodern movement was, or I should say is, architect Robert Am Stern, who has a huge practice that continues today. Stern's early work resembles the cartoon nature of Graves and Venturi, but quickly took a more academic tone. Stern is a serious historian and educator. He has published tomes of books on the history of New York and other places, and served as the dean of Yale Architecture School from 1998 to 2016. Where the others saw the past as something to make reference to casually, Stern engaged with a diverse array of stylistic languages and learned to actually speak them completely, so that in some cases, it's difficult to say whether his buildings or houses were built yesterday or a hundred years ago. While this is often a tough pill for the broader architectural community to swallow, it connects very, very well with the general public who tend to connect with what they know. And that sounds, I think, a little bit disparaging, but to create what people know is often more difficult to make than to make what they don't know. Think of your favorite meal made by your mother, then imagine a friend cooking it for you instead. Or think about how quickly you recognize if someone is speaking with an accent despite the years they've taken to learn perfect English. Would you ever notice the difference if they were speaking a language that you had never heard? I think the same is kind of true with architecture. If you some if you try to invent something totally new, nobody's going to ask any questions. But if you're trying to do something in a language that is already familiar to you, if you don't hit it just right, it's going to be really really obvious. Rudolph, Venturi and Scott Brown were early and set the movement in motion. Graves and Stern represent two possible avenues a student of the movement may have taken, and this brings me to my current crush, Philippe Stark. One reasonable criticism of late postmodernism is that it had a lot to do with style as an end. There are plenty of examples where this is not true, but probably far more where it is. By contrast, Philippe Stark's stated mission is... Creation, whatever form it takes, must improve the lives of as many people as possible. I don't know if Stark would ever have defined himself as a postmodernist in the sense we've just been discussing, but I've anchored him in this conversation because that's where we see the germination of his work. Two of his earliest chairs included in our book are titled Richard III and Lola Mundo. 
dated 1984 and 86. These do differ from the cartoon nature of the Venturi chairs, but not that much. Richard III was designed for the French president, François Mitterrand. From the front, it looks like a classic club chair with fatly upholstered armchairs and deep padded seat. When you get nearer, though, you realize the whole thing is made of polyurethane, and as you make your way around to the side of the chair, you see the rear has been carved away entirely, with the facade supported by two rigid plastic legs, instead of the expected upholstered base. This differs from the, from the Venturi chairs, both in that it is a genuine surprise to see the chair profile cut away like this, and that it required more thorough interaction with an earlier version of the chair to make a convincing mockery. Still, it is cartoonish in concept. The Lola Mundo chair sort of feels like a classic dining chair with its vaguely cabriol leg, but these are made of aluminum and support a bent wood seat perforated with rubber studs. On second glance, you sort of think it would be happy in a sedate antechamber to Catherine O'Hara's dining room in the movie Beetlejuice. But from here, Stark departs, never forgetting that we all enjoy a bit of a story and some reference to history where it makes sense. What I like about Stark is he's not puritanical in his pursuit to better the lives of millions. He focuses considerable energy on refining designs suited to mass production and delivery to market at a price that many can afford, but he doesn't take all the fun away. I hate the sort of ramen noodle design that declares people are starving and the climate's eroding, and I use that as the impetus for this pile of garbage I've created and put before you today. Felique Stark demonstrates that's not necessary, it's just lazy. There's a bunch to look at preceding this recent venture, but a good illustration of what I'm getting at is the AI chair he did recently in partnership with Cartel and Autodesk. This is said to be the first chair designed in cooperation with artificial intelligence. Cartel and Stark asked the Autodesk software, do you know how we can rest our bodies using the least amount of material? Then they had to teach it about injection-molded construction methods to define the software's parameters. The result, made of recycled thermoplastic technopolymer, is a lovely chair with slim lines conceived in part by something that had no preconceived notion of what a chair should be. We are a long way from style wars here. But let's go back a little, because there are a few Stark chairs you've seen again and again, and they're quietly referential. In 1994, Stark released the Lord Yo, its injection-molded polypropylene seat shell on tubular aluminum legs is essentially a plastic reworking of a traditional tub or barrel chair. It's not a chair that begs a controversial response or intellectual engagement on behalf of its user. It's a very affordable, comfortable chair designed on lines known to cradle the body well. It represents a maturation of his work and leads to a succession of similarly rational chairs, perhaps culminating in the Louis Ghost chair in 2002. The Louis Ghost, along with its squarer 1998 precursor, La Marie, represents one of the first single-form, single-material chairs to be injection-molded in clear polycarbonate. It has no connections. It is one single piece of transparent lucite, manufactured all at once. And it's based on a French chair popular at the court of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. 
rooted in history as it is, it's not even a little fussy, and it's one of the rare plastic chairs that works in a range of domestic interiors without drawing a lot of attention to itself. Maybe that's because it's see-through, but its lines are also very simple. This chair does a much better job of capturing its precursor's essence than the Venturi chairs. This one is elegant, quiet, and most importantly, actually comfortable. Retailing now between $300 and $500, it's also easy to specify for almost any client. Because the chair was so popular when it debuted, Stark and its manufacturer Cartel introduced the very similar armless Victoria Ghost chair. Happily, it now comes in a variety of transparent colors as well as solid black or white. Stark paid quiet homage to the past again in 2009 with his master's chair. Done in partnership with a Catalan designer whose name I have an impossible time pronouncing. This time, what appears as a truly unique outline in dyed polypropylene to the layman is actually the silhouette of three classic mid-century chairs combined. At second glance, you'll be able to trace the profiles of the Arnje Jakobsen Series 7, Aero Saarinen's Tulip Chair, and Charles Eames' Eiffel Tower Chair. One feels this is the sort of ingenious way these earlier designers would have liked to be referenced. The Masters is simple, elegant, and useful, not bizarre or superficial, and seriously, not immediately recognized as referential at all. Relying on technological advances yet again, the same duo also delivered the Mr. Impossible chair. Like Louis and Victoria Ghost, this is made of clear plastic, except in the case of the in this case, two shells are welded together. The inner shell is colored, and the outer is totally clear. And it's just another example of chic, comfortable, affordable expression of new technology. Since this is a series dedicated to the study of chairs, I may be leaving you with the impression Philippe Stark designed nothing but in fact, his work is far more diverse than that of Michael Graves with whom we began. He designs lighting, shower systems, bathtubs, that spaceship spider-looking lemon squeezer you've seen, hull interiors, buildings, hotels, sailboats, yachts for Steve Jobs, smartphones, titanium glasses, flip-flops, fitness watches, earphones, swings, slings for babies, baby strollers, prefabricated houses, bicycles, motorcycles, cars, and the interior of Axiom Space's first commercial space station. Stark's father was an aeronautical engineer, a fact which he credits for making invention his duty. But if we can bring it back to where we began, Stark also says, if there is no vision, humane, social, or loving, a project doesn't have the legitimacy to exist. Don't worry, because I think this sounds a little bit loftier than it is. Stark looks for solutions to contemporary problems or issues, but also seems to remember that not all problems are huge. One problem might be needing to find somewhere to go out with the family because it's cold outside, or because they're hungry, thirsty, or just want to have fun. Stark identifies himself as a film director in these issues, offering the public the most complete spiritual notion possible of the spaces they may visit, adding that public spaces are all about emotions and experiences. I think in understanding this, we find what has separated him from the earlier postmodernists. They were making statements about the past to people of their present. Stark, 
relies on the past to set the stage for stories yet to be told by these same people. That is, he considers what the human might do with the space he provides, just as Paul Rudolph did in the medievally arranged interiors of his Yale School of Architecture building before the movement we've just discussed could even be named. I think the best designers spend a lot of time, or at least considerable energy, thinking about and observing how their clients do and will use a space in the future. If there's anything you can take away from this conversation, apart from the fact that Philippe Stark has made some beautiful chairs and objects of all sorts, it's that a really good designer spends time getting to know their client and getting to think about them and the problems that they actually face. So I think go out this week, learn about your clients, understand the problems they're facing, and help set the stage for their lives. I'll see you next week for a final word on chairs. Thank you.